0: This is episode 296 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show and contribute directly to programming as well as access over 150 episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms when you sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. If you'd like to try out some of the history you learn about here on the show, then consider joining Experience Shakespeare. That's our membership here at That Shakespeare Life. We offer digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history, along with a printable members resource library full of worksheets, lesson plans, and other printable downloads that are great if you're taking our show into your classroom. Learn more at CassidyCash.com member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details.
1: Hi, I'm Natalie Gruniger. I'm an independent researcher specializing in the life of Anne Boleyn. I'm the author of The Final Year of Anne Boleyn, and I'm also the host of the Talking Tudors podcast. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash.
2: They've often been described not so much as ghost stories in the way that we might think stereotypically of the ghost story. They are revenant stories. In other words, they're stories about the dead, the reanimated corpse almost coming back in order to right wrongs and and correct injustices.
0: And now, here's Cassidy. This Christmas season, we are celebrating the holidays Shakespeare style by bringing out some traditional Tudor ghost stories. For the 16th and 17th century, one popular time to tell ghost stories was during the wintertime over the Christmas holidays. A more accurate term for these stories might be ghost narratives because they're different than the stories we think of today as ghost stories. Instead of being fictional tales for the purpose of scary entertainment, ghost narratives from Shakespeare's lifetime were factual tales or at least witness-based accounts Were people would tell about encountering ghosts or other supernatural beings. Our guest, Dr. Francis Young, is here this week to tell us about these stories, their association with Christmas, and the details surrounding some evidence that suggests Mamelius might be about to tell one of these stories in Shakespeare's play The Winter's Tale. Francis Young obtained his Ph.D. in history from Cambridge University and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He teaches for Oxford University's Department for Continuing Education and is the author of over 20 books on the history of religion and supernatural belief, including Magic in Merlin's Realm and Twilight of the Godlings. You can find out more about Francis Young, including where to find him on Twitter, in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Francis. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life.
2: Hello. It's great to be here.
0: So are ghost stories actually associated with Christmas time for Tudor England? Was this a Christmas thing to do to tell ghost stories?
2: Yes, it seems that this tradition of telling spooky stories is associated with midwinter. So that would be the Christmas season. And of course, in Tudor England, that would have been a a season that ran from Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, right the way through to Twelfth Night, and Twelfth Night was the evening of the 5th of January, so the eve of the Feast of Epiphany. So covering that kind of New Year's period.
0: You mentioned in an email to me before the show that there is some evidence Mamilius in Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale might be about to tell a ghost story at one point in the play. Can you tell us more about the format used to identify a ghost story from this time period? And what evidence is there, from the play that makes you think this is a glimpse of a Tudor ghost story showing up in The Winter's Tale.
2: Yeah, so there's this fascinating moment when Mimilius is about to tell a a story which seems to be a spooky story because he opens with the words, there was a man dwelt by a churchyard. And that's all there is because then it's cut (laughs) off. But it seems that this is something which is associated with childhood. It seems to be the sort of thing that a child would be interested in. And of course, children at every age are drawn to the macabre and the spooky. And the fact that we've got this story that introduces an unnamed character and then the place where he is at is the churchyard. And it seems that in Tudor thinking, this link between the churchyard and ghosts is, is quite a strong one. The place of burial and the manifestation of the ghost. And this is something that goes way back into the Middle Ages, really. When you look at medieval ghost stories, they've often been described not so much as ghost stories in the way that we might think stereotypically of the ghost story. They are revenant stories. In other words, they're stories about the dead, the reanimated corpse almost coming back in order to right wrongs and, and correct injustices and visiting the living. It's, it's like not The Walking so much Dead, your... but
0: in the 16th
2: century. Yeah, yeah, this, this idea of The Walking Dead. And this is found as early as the 12th century. You've got a, a, a series of ghost stories associated with Byland Abbey, a Cistercian Abbey up in Yorkshire about revenants and, and in the in the local village. And it seems there was a, a genuine belief in this as well. I mean, when Warren Percy, a deserted village, was excavated a few years ago, the old burials were discovered, and several of them had stakes that had been driven down through the, the hearts of, of people who were buried. And the people were already dead when this happened to them. But it's this idea that there were certain people, there was concern that they might walk, the idea of the walk dead, that they would come back after their, their deaths. And this was a particular concern about people who had died in unholy ways. So if somebody had committed suicide, if somebody had been buried in unconsecrated ground, if someone had died without the rites of the church, if someone had died unbaptized, so there, there are all these concerns. And those seem to filter through into the 16th century. And one of the things that fascinates me about Shakespeare's time, so looking at the late 16th, early 17th century, it seems that the Reformation had failed to make much of an impact on beliefs about the dead, and that includes beliefs about ghosts and revenants. Well,
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that the Reformation failed to make much of an impact, because I know the Bible talks a couple of times about characters like Samuel who are communicated with from beyond the grave. And there's several stories in the Bible about talking with with spirits that are located in heaven or hell. And it's an occurrence that's not only frowned upon, but directly associated with sorcery and witchcraft, both of which are not allowed by Christian beliefs. Given the place of Protestantism in Shakespeare's England, how were the preachers and the church officials responding to the Presence of these kinds of ghost stories being included at a celebratory time that was all about you know Jesus and would they have felt that was contradictory?
2: Yeah, well, the dominant theology found in the Church of England in the time of Shakespeare, you know, in, in the late late 16th early 17th century, was Calvinism, and in Calvinist theology there is essentially a decree of election which, which says that somebody is either going to heaven or that someone is going. To hell. Now, those are places which, in Calvinist understanding, generally there's no option for somebody to come back in any way from one of those places. So, this is a kind of an idea of an, of an irrevocable decree. No one is going to be allowed to come back from heaven because what would be the point? They're now with God. And no one is going to be allowed to come back from hell because they're being punished by Satan. And so, yeah, this, these older ideas about people coming back from the dead in order to warn people or in order to right wrongs or in order to deal with unfinished business, they're very closely linked to the medieval Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And that's the idea that those who die without having fully purged themselves of the sins that they committed in life through the rights of the church have to go to this intermediate state where they spend you know, many, many years, centuries perhaps, being purged of their sins by fire before they are admitted to heaven. And one of the things that medieval people believe the spirits in purgatory might be allowed to do is to come back and correct some of the injustices that that they, they, they were responsible for or involved in on earth. So belief in ghosts seems to be closely linked to that. And so, yeah, there, there isn't really a place within that sort of 16th century Protestant understanding of the place of the dead for the possibility of people returning from the dead. On the other hand, you've mentioned this story of Saul uh, and the witch of Endor and the spirit of Samuel. And there was great debate amongst uh, theologians about what this meant. And some said it wasn't really the spirit of Samuel that was conjured up by the witch of Endor. It was really just an evil spirit m- mimicking and pretending to be Samuel. And this was a judgment upon Saul for having this unholy curiosity and using necromancy, the art of, if you like, reanimating the dead by dark magic. And yeah, you get other traditions that said, well, maybe God allowed it on that one particular occasion. And then that may, that opens the possibility that maybe in exceptional circumstances, God's providence might allow a ghost to appear. And this idea of is the ghost a demonic deception or is the ghost a providence of God is absolutely central, I would argue, to Hamlet, to the plot of that play, because you've got the the ghost of Hamlet's father appears. Is this the devil, you know, essentially having a go at Hamlet and destroying his life, which ultimately is, of course, what happens? Or is this a singular providence of God allowing Hamlet's father to correct this injustice that took place. And that ambiguity sort of runs throughout the play. So I think, yeah, th- this debate is very much in the background in several of, 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 of Shakespeare's plays about what happens to the dead and what is the position of the dead. And, and no one really reached any kind of agreement. And there, it was a genuine area of disagreement and not necessarily very fruitful disagreement. Uh, but yes, I mean, the, the the basic disagreement was grounded in the Reformation and in the rejection of the idea of purgatory.
0: So now I'm interested in what the ghost narratives were for this time period or what the stories that people told as fact, because you mentioned that there are always instances of, of real people that were reanimated for one reason or another. And I was wondering if you could share some of these stories with us. What are some ghost stories that survive from Shakespeare's lifetime about individuals who either claim to have seen spirits or ghosts or somehow encountered the supernatural in this way?
2: Yeah, this is unfortunate because we don't have any detailed, first-person kind of narrations of, of encounters with ghosts, to be honest. What tends to happen is that these Anecdotes are, are told and pop up in pamphlets from time to time that somebody you know, uh, had hidden an altered will, for example, before they died. After their death, the specter is seen to return. Often the specter will be wearing a, a, a burial shroud, will be wearing a, a white sheet. That, in fact, is where the idea of a ghost in a white sheet comes from. So the burial shroud uh, after the statutes of Elizabeth that required the burial in linen, it would be this long shroud that covered the whole body and then was tied at the top in a bunch. Uh, And so sometimes you'll see these represented on monumental brasses in English churches. It's a very peculiar looking thing, not not quite like how we would imagine a, a ghost in a sheet. But you'd have these returning revenants or ghosts, whatever we want to call them. And often it would be something just as simple as the Ghost appears and points to a spot in the wall or in the floorboards where the will happens to be buried, and things like that. but these are very brief accounts you know these there's nothing elaborate, and certainly the kind of the romantic ghost story, as we would understand it that's full of atmosphere and full of spooky build up and full of suspense, you know this is totally unknown. To, no, uh, to the not 16th anywhere century. near the
0: level of Charles Dickens and his ghosts and, and things like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But one, one that I would single out, which is actually a satirical one, which is, is perhaps my favorite 16th century ghost story. And this is an example of a, a fictional ghost story, which are quite rare. Uh, that, that These are recorded in the 16th century because that wasn't a genre, the idea of the fictional ghost story and the way that we would understand it. But this is Erasmus. And Erasmus writes one called uh, The Exorcism. And it's set in England. Erasmus was not English, but he did spend a lot of time in England. He was, in fact, professor of Greek at Cambridge. And this is before the the English Reformation, just before the English Reformation. And he was very concerned about superstition. And so he tells this uh, satirical story about a a parish priest somewhere in England who is very superstitious and, and thinks that spirits are abroad and walking in the churchyard. Again, the churchyard theme coming back. And uh, a group of students decide to uh, play a prank on him, and so they get a load of crabs. I think they're quite near the seaside, and they um, uh, tie candles to the back of the crabs. At night, they light the candles, and I think this actually happens on All Hallows' Eve. Um, so this is the, the night when prayers would especially be being said for the souls of all who were buried. You know, nothing like our modern Halloween as we would understand it, but but nevertheless. A period of time in the year when there was very much a focus on the on the dead and the souls of the dead, and so the priest comes out of the church after having said these prayers for the dead and sees these lights moving among the tombstones. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, it's revealed that it's all a, a hoax, and they make fun of him and so forth. But I, I found this, you know, it, it, the, even a satirical story like that gives insight into the kind of things that people might have believed. So the idea of lights moving among tombstones, for example, as a possible belief. So, yeah, there's not very much that we would recognise as the kind of classic ghost story. And in fact, I would use the, the phrase ghost narrative to describe what's going on in most of these cases. Erasmus's story is unusual because it's fiction. Most of them are attempted factual reporting of a story that the narrator believes to be true. And so I would say that they're more reportage and narrative rather than ghost stories as we would understand them.
0: Where should we look to read an example of one of these ghost narratives from this time period? What's, if Erasmus is unusual and part of a fictional one, what's an alternative example of one that was not fictional?
2: Well, you've got a a number of uh, examples that pop up in the the work of a a Protestant pamphleteer called John Gee. Um, And John Gee was, again, he was using this stuff in a, not so much a satirical, but in a polemical way. He had a particular agenda, which is anti-Catholic. And so he gives a number of accounts of elaborate deceptions that were practiced mostly on Catholic gentlewomen who the... The Jesuits were allegedly trying to, you know, get get them to pay money to the Jesuit order, and so they would, you know, have these elaborate deceptions to show that the spirit of someone, uh, you know, who was a, who was a relative of one of these ladies, had had passed to purgatory and was was beseeching prayers and telling them to pay money to the Jesuit order and things like that. So again, you know, it's very difficult to judge whether any of this stuff really happened or you know whether John Gee elaborates it in a particular way. I'd also recommend as a secondary source for looking at this stuff, there's a great book by Peter Marshall called Beliefs in the Dead in early modern England, which gives a kind of an overview and lots of examples of these kind of uh, ghost narratives.
0: Well was there any distinction made between sacred ghosts I think of things like angels or other you know cherubs that are mentioned in the bible and other spiritual beings that were not associated with anything evil or scary and then perhaps secular ones like the reappearance of the dead was was there any division there
2: Yeah this is actually an interesting case of a shift in language between early modern English and contemporary English in contemporary English we we tend to Think of the words "ghost" and "ghostly" as purely paranormal, you know, referring to uh, those kind of you know par- paranormal beliefs with a slightly sinister connotation, perhaps. Whereas the word "ghost" in early modern English still has its Middle English meaning of spirit, any kind of spirit, and of course we still find that in liturgical English in references to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost, and. Also, the word ghostly. So you might, for example, refer to your confessor in 16th century England as your ghostly father, your spiritual father. So it doesn't have that sense of the sinister or the paranormal. So I think, yeah, when when we come across this word ghost, it does for a 16th century person, it simply means a spirit. And so it could mean an angel. It could mean something sent from God something wholly positive and wholly good. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you, you, there's not very many cases in the 16th century of people claiming to encounter angels. Uh, there is a, a great book about this by uh, Laura Sanger, which is, which is called uh, Angels in Early Modern England, which looks at a couple of instances of this. But again, you know, that's sort of out of the range normally of Calvinist theology, of, of accepted Protestant theology. Because generally, God is said to not really do much in the world. You know, he doesn't generally intervene. He's not much of an interventionist God. Generally speaking, his work has been accomplished through the, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there isn't much that needs to be done. So that would be a bit out of the realms of orthodoxy. But you do get unorthodox groups. So the, the family of love, the Anabaptists, claiming to have had angelic encounters. Perhaps the most famous person in the 16th century who repeatedly had angelic encounters was the magician John Dee, and he employed a medium who spoke to angels in a sphere, and occasionally uh, in in a crystal sphere, and occasionally Dee would actually see these angels and speak to these angels himself, although mostly it was through his medium, Edward Kelly. So the idea of speaking to angels, it was a bit out there. You know, I wouldn't say that it's something that your average parishioner would have expected to see angels. And in fact, the the seeing of ghosts was much more common. But again, I would say that seeing a ghost in the 16th century is not necessarily a frightening experience in quite the same way that we might think of it. It was certainly a disquieting experience, but it wasn't necessarily something that you would meet with terror. Uh, it, It was simply a part of god's world that you know god's providence would sometimes allow the dead to return to instruct the living and and when you read these ghost narratives these anecdotes most of them aren't sinister at all you know there's nothing threatening about these ghosts they're mostly dead relatives who've come back to right a wrong or correct something that and and in, in a lot of cases actually they have a positive spin on them because the dead relative is coming back to tell someone where they hid money. And so obviously, you know, the person who sees the ghost is benefiting directly from the ghost, uh, or the ghost is directing someone to treasure. So yeah, I I would say that a, a difference between us and people in the early modern period is that ghosts are actually not very threatening beings at all. And there's certainly no suggestion that a ghost is going to do you harm. If we want to find beings that will do people harm, then we're actually looking at fairies. Fairies are very, very threatening and unpleasant beings in the 16th century. And, of course, human witches. But ghosts are are not really a threat.
0: In our modern celebrations of Christmas, there are traditional stories that make repetitive appearances each year. I think of figures like Santa or Frosty the Snowman, for example. For Shakespeare's England, when we're talking about Christmas time and the Christmas season, Were there any traditional ghost stories that would similarly have been popular or repetitive that you would expect to see reiterated in pamphlets or broadside ballads every Christmas season?
2: There aren't any that we know of. I mean, there are, of course, figures in early modern England who would have been as familiar to people back then as Santa Claus or, you know, Santa's elves are to us today. And those would have been figures of celebration so for example you've got the lord of misrule the idea that on 12th night some well say so in some places it's 12th night in other places it's it's new year's eve that someone would assume the role of lord of misrule usually one of the servants in a large house and would essentially give orders to people to do silly things so that would have been a very familiar figure similarly first foot so on new year's eve or new year's day going into new year's day somebody would take on the role of being the first person to cross the threshold of the house and that person had to be for example had dark hair and dark and dark eyes and that person would then make the rest of the year lucky and so forth so you know those are kind of the the things that are familiar and would be repeated from year to year but they're not specifically spooky And I think when it comes to the ghost stories that might have been told by people, I think what we're looking for is tropes rather than a specific narrative that was always followed. So whereas, you know, we might be familiar with certain things being recited every Christmas, like, you know, the poem, The the, the Night Before Christmas and so forth, I don't think we're looking at a society which would read the same story or recite the same story. We're looking at an oral society where these things don't get written down, which, you know, is very annoying to me. because I wish they had Absolutely. written down what these stories were. You know, how is Memilius going to carry on? And in fact, M.R. James, the great uh, writer of, of ghost stories in the 19th and 20th century, M.R. James did write a ghost story called There Was a Man Lived by the Churchyard, which tries to finish Memilius's story. And in fact, the story is set in Elizabethan England And is is very much trying to imagine the kind of ghost story that might have been told. We just don't have them. We just don't know. But, you know, I said at the start about the churchyard, about the returning dead, about the unquiet dead, about the dead walking. And I think that something that is common to all cultures that tell ghost stories in the winter months seems to be this contrast between your coziness sitting around the fire, you know, we're all safe here, we're all huddling together, but we are at the same time enhancing our feeling of coziness by telling stories that are about the outer darkness. And that might be the the literal outer darkness of, of the cold out there, or it might be as a deeper outer darkness, which is, if you like, the abyss of evil or the abyss of you know spiritual beings beyond our understanding and you know if you want the origins of the english ghost story you could go far as back as far back as beowulf because you know beowulf is a story about the warriors of Hroth in their cozy hall and yet in the middle of winter this being grendel keeps breaking into the hall and and, and killing warriors and you can imagine this is exactly the kind of story that warriors would have Hold each other while huddled around their their halls. so I think that's that's primal, that's quite basic, the idea that you tell scary stories in order to make yourself feel better in the middle of the winter months. So I think yeah, we can ex- we, we can piece together if you like, a few pieces of the jigsaw and say, yeah, they were probably stories about the returning dead, they're probably stories about churchyards because churchyards would creep people out as a, as a place that is associated with the returning dead. They might be about the unquiet dead, so people who died of unfinished business, people who had unholy deaths. We know that there was a, a genre of ghost story that goes way back in England about evil landlords. So these are, you know, evil lords of the manor who live particularly sinful lives. Often they will have a nasty encounter with the devil who carries them off. And then as a result of that, they will haunt a particular place. And they are probably the most sinister kind of ghost. Sometimes they turn into a a being that's even worse than a ghost called a boggart. And the boggart is is a being that just causes pure terror if you walk past the place that the boggart haunts. And there are stories also that go way back about groups of exorcists, about groups of parsons who would turn up and say prayers, and perform spells and conjure this boggart or this ghost into a bottle and throw it into a lake. So, again, you know, these are kind of classic stories, probably they were told in the 16th century the, the versions that we have are, are from a bit later um, from the 17th and 18th century. But it's very likely that they were the kind of stories that were told in that Judah period period.
0: I know we'd love to dive in and explore these puzzle pieces and take a trip through the maze that is the history of ghost stories and Christmas celebrations for Shakespeare's lifetime. Now, you've mentioned the Angels of Early Modern Europe, as well as work by Peter Marshall, which we will link to in the show notes today. But what are some resources you can recommend for someone that's new to this topic? Where should we begin if we want to learn more?
2: There are some really great books on this. I mean, there's a classic book, which is by Keith Thomas, called Religion and the Decline of Magic. It's a very hefty tone, but it really is a kind of starting point for people who are interested in the supernatural and supernatural belief in early modern England and and Shakespeare's time. It's a long time since it was written. It came out in the early 1970s, but it is still a great overview of all these kind of stories. There's a great book by Owen Davies called The Haunted, A Social History of Ghosts. Uh, So I'd very much recommend that. And anything by Owen Davies, who is one of the leading folklorists uh, in England at the moment. Nancy Cacciola has written about ghost narratives in the Middle Ages. And that's really useful background for looking at uh, and uh, and understanding the later development of that in the 16th century. That's a scholar I'd also recommend who's who's written about the, the medieval ghost narratives and these revenant stories that I mentioned from the 12th century onwards. Those would all be good places for people to look if they want to know more about this.
0: Those are great places to start if you want to explore this topic further. Thank you for those recommendations. Stay tuned at the end for the URL where you can find direct links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. Francis, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
2: Well, the, the book that I would take to a desert island is uh, Maimonides' The Guide to the Perplexed. And The Guide the guide for the Perplexed is, is a book which I would take to a desert island because it's Very, very difficult to understand, but always very rewarding when you actually get there. And therefore, I think it would keep me entertained on a desert island for a good long time. And so I think that's that's the one that I'd choose, not necessarily because it's my favorite book, but because it's a book I find endlessly fascinating and very, very rich.
0: Always important to bring something you can revisit and approach as new when you're stuck on a deserted island, I think. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
2: Well, I've got uh, a couple of books coming up that are going to be, one's going to be published later this year, which is about the Franciscan friars in England, the early days of the Franciscan friars in the 13th century and their arrival in England. I've got another book coming out next year, uh, which is actually a book of translations of Latin poetry from the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So that would, a lot of that is is contemporaneous with the period that Shakespeare scholars are looking at, but from a very different part of Europe, very different kind of literature. And I've also got a book coming out, uh, which is called Paganism Persisting, co-authored with uh, Dr. Robin Douglas. And that's a, a history of the attempts at revivals of pagan religion in Europe after antiquity. And that's, that's something which hasn't really been examined or treated before. So, yeah, that, that will be coming out either in 2024 or 2025. So those are a few of the things that I've got in the pipeline.
0: We're very much looking forward to seeing these come to fruition and being able to read them. We will place links again in the show notes to Francis Young's work where you can follow along and be able to find those when they are published. Francis, thank you so much for being here this week and sharing with us the history of ghost stories for Christmas time and explaining for us kind of how that fits into the story of William Shakespeare and letting us have a little slice of what it would have been like in Tudor England to celebrate Christmas with William Shakespeare. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I've gathered up visuals and artifacts that go along with our conversation today, including images of the ghosts and links to some of these stories, and especially that shroud that we mentioned that's kind of weird looking and tied up at the top. There's some pictures of all of those things that go along with the very visual imagery we were talking about in today's show. So if you'd like to explore these extra tidbits, you can find all of it packed into the show notes for today's episode. These are all located at CassidyCash.com slash episode 296. That's CassidyCash.com. EP296. Why just learn about Shakespeare history when you can experience it? If you would like to dive even deeper into the history you learn about here on the show, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare invites you to step into the 17th century with a collection of hands-on history activity kits that let you try out pieces of Shakespeare's history for yourself at home or in your classroom. Examples of kits we offer include making Tudor soap balls, learning how to play the game of naughty, which is a card game that shows up in Shakespeare's two gentlemen of Verona, or even how to make your own iron gall ink. Each kit coordinates with Shakespeare's plays and specific episodes of our show. So if you like the idea of going beyond the episode and really diving into the past and trying out some of these things for yourself, then explore experience Shakespeare, where you can cook play and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare for Shakespeare educators. The membership also includes an entire library of coordinating worksheets, lessons, and plans, maps, diagrams, and more, all of which coordinate with our show and with Shakespeare's Place. Find out more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com member. That's CassidyCash.com member. That Shakespeare Life is powered here each week by the support of our patrons. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show, not available on public listening platforms, along with insider access to the making of our show, where they can see who the upcoming guests are. I offer monthly reading suggestions, and patrons have the opportunity to submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you're a loyal podcast listener here at That Shakespeare Life and want to play a direct role in bringing the best Shakespeare history into the studio here each week, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that's patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that shakespeare life is researched and produced by me cassidy cash our audio engineer is gary mayholm that's it for this week thank you for listening i hope you're enjoying a wonderful christmas season and thank you for spending a part of it here with us i'm cassidy cash and i hope you learn something new about the bard i'll see you next time Bye bye
1: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.